You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Pete Betke, the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics here at the Mercatus Center. And today we have a great panel to discuss um, I'm biasly going to say a great book uh, called Money and the Rule of Law, uh, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions, um, the, uh, which is uh, published by Alex Salter, Dan Smith, and myself. Um, I'm going to have uh, cede the floor to my co-authors uh, to be able to uh, introduce the book and describe it. And then we will hear from uh, two experts in monetary economics and monetary history, uh, David Beckworth, who is a senior research fellow at Mercatus Center. Um, he's a former international economist at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Um, he uh, runs a very popular uh, podcast himself on, on macroeconomics. And uh, David has written and published several pieces um, in both the popular media and in the academic world uh, dealing with uh, monetary theory, uh, theory, monetary policy, monetary history. And then uh, we'll also hear from our colleague, uh, Lawrence White, um, who is a professor here at George Mason University, specializing in monetary theory and, and the history of money and banking. Uh, Larry is uh, responsible for, in many ways, creating the field of uh, uh, competing currencies and alternative uh, uh, institutional structures for, for banking and finance. And so with David and, and uh, uh, Larry, we don't have uh, uh, any two better people that could comment on what we're trying to do in the book. So I'm really thrilled for this conversation to continue. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Alex and then Dan, and then we'll turn it to David first and then Larry. So Thank you, Pete. I'm looking forward to discussing the book with you all, and I'm especially interested to hear your feedback. So along with Dan Smith and Pete Becky, uh, I wrote this book called Money and the Rule of Law. I and my co-authors are very excited to present this argument to you. And what really motivated this project, we had been working on comparative institutional analysis for money and banking separately and also together on a number of co-authored pieces for a while, and then uh, independently, we all sort of realized we have several papers here. This is the good foundation for a book project. And so it was our pleasure to join together. It was very much a team effort. We really enjoyed working on this project. And we think that our argument comes at a very important time for money and banking, especially as we're seeing some uh, innovations in the practice of central banking around the world. So the way that we start the book, we open up with a quote by Ben Bernanke who was giving a talk at a conference that was honoring Milton Friedman and I think Anna Schwartz as well. Uh, it was an anniversary, I believe, of their, of their magisterial monetary history of the United States. And Ben Bernanke said this, he turned to Milton and Anna said, I would like to say to Milton and Anna, regarding the Great Depression, you're right, we did it, we being the Federal Reserve. We're very sorry, but thanks to you, we won't do it again. And this is a very humbling and optimistic quote. It reveals the idea that monetary policy had some 
bumps in the road, especially in its earlier days. But monetary policy had really come into its own. This was said at the tail end of the great moderation. And so there was a lot of optimism that finally monetary policymakers had discovered the tools and the techniques necessary to really smooth out the business cycle, at least on the demand side. And I think at the time, their optimism was perhaps justified in the sense that they, they had internalized the lessons taught to them by the greats of the field, like Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. And yet, alas, just a couple of years later, with the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve did in fact do it again. The 2008 financial crisis is really the archetypal narrative that we use in the book to explain recent monetary policy failures. Uh, one interesting timing aspect associated with the book is that it came out just as the COVID crisis was getting very bad. And of course, monetary authorities all across the world, not just the Federal Reserve, engaged in some interesting and novel policies to combat the turmoil from COVID. And so in some ways, having our book about the financial crisis, using that as our lodestar was auspicious, in some ways not so auspicious, but we also discussed the, the Fed policies related to COVID at the very end. But I want to focus for now on the 2008 financial crisis, because I think it's a danger to move from one crisis to the next without us really learning the lessons associated with the first crisis. So we indict the Federal Reserve for making two big mistakes with respect to the 2008 financial crisis. Before the crisis, we assert that the Federal Reserve was too loose in its monetary policy. Sometimes you hear people say things like central banks around the world have kept interest rates low for decades, or at least a decade at a time. For 20 plus years, central banks have embraced a low interest rate policy. We don't think that that sort of a narrative is plausible. Interest rates are ultimately set in global markets uh, for capital governed by supply and demand. But nonetheless, especially when monetary policy deviates from previously regular behavior, especially when monetary policy is a surprise, there can arise a wedge between the market rate of interest was actually prevailing on the market and the rate of interest that's actually consistent with market fundamentals like the real demand and real supply of capital. And this is exactly what we contend happened in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis that helped and fuel the credit bubble. Uh, we include this graphic which shows the Federal Reserve's key policy rate, that actual level, as compared with hypothetical rules for a Taylor rule rate. And we see that even under very aggressive monetary policy rules, the actual interest rate that prevailed for monetary policy from about mid-2002 up until 2006 was much more aggressive and much more expansionary. So there can be temporary deviations and market rates of interest away from their fundamental levels. There can be a temporary creation of artificially cheap credit. And while by no means a sufficient part of the story of the financial crisis in terms of inflating the asset bubble, we think that this is an important part of the story and it can't fully be told without it. So we indict the Fed beforehand for being too loose. And then after the bubble burst, we indict the Fed for being too tight. And this can be seen in the precipitous drop in nominal gross domestic product, final expenditures in currently valued dollars after the bubble burst. Given that you have a central bank with a fiat money operating system, it's pretty much the central bank's responsibility for managing aggregate demand, making sure that final goods and services expenditures are stabilized. This was something that's been agreed to by a number of economists going back to including F.A. Hayek. F.A. Hayek was a fan of a nominal expenditure rule. Many free market economists have been fans of that rule ever since. And uh, I'm persuaded of the merits of that strategy, but the way that we wanna look, look at this is even on the Fed's own terms, 
it was unable to stop the collapse in economic activity that followed the burst of the bubble and asset markets. So you did see this precipitous spillover from the financial sector to the real goods and services sector. So the Federal Reserve really messed up both ways. It was too loose before the crisis. It was too tight after the crisis. What does this tell us? We thought that we had really internalized the, the lessons associated with Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's project. We thought we understood the difference between loose money and tight money. We thought we understood the fact that the central bank has not complete control by any means, but nonetheless significant influence over the volume of economic activity via the mechanism of aggregate demand stabilization, total expenditure stabilization. So why does the Fed keep on failing us? We don't think the problem is with any particular technique or any particular policy. All of us, the authors on this project, see the problem is discretionary central banking itself. Discretionary central banking itself. We think the Fed keeps on messing up because discretion in monetary policy is a fundamentally inappropriate means to attain the desired end of macroeconomic stability. It just can't work for a host of reasons that we go into in great detail in the book and then I'm also going to overview in just a couple of minutes. Now, in recent years, there's been this idea of constrained discretion as an optimal operating framework for monetary policy. The idea is we commit to a rule-like framework that's enough like a true monetary rule that it can create credibility and stabilize, stabilization for market participants. But if an extraordinary event arises, we can deviate from the rule as needed to more closely focus on financial contagion or unemployment or whatever macroeconomic variable might be of interest to the policymakers at the time. And in our conception, this is really a, a, false, uh, a false ideal. It's a mirage. Constrained discretion for all of its uh, justifications is just another word for a different type of discretion in monetary policy. If rules aren't binding, they aren't real rules. It's not enough for central banks to embrace internally rule-like behavior. Because if it's just an internal policy choice made by the central bank, then that central bank can also make the policy choice to deviate from rule-like behavior. And a rule that you can deviate from on your judgment with no penalties is not a true rule at all. What we're really doing in this project is thinking constitutionally, small c, about monetary policy. Now, when we say constitutionally, we're not referring to the specific governing document of the United States. We're referring to a method of economic analysis that shifts the analytical interest from outcomes to the rules that govern the outcomes. Right? We, used to, we usually think of economics as rational choice under conditions of scarcity, according to some basic rules for how the market works. Constitutional economics examines the rational choice of the rules themselves, of the constraints themselves. So we're bringing that perspective that was pioneered by uh, James Buchanan in particular, and also Hayek and Friedman made contributions to that, to that field of knowledge as well, but especially James Buchanan, we're bringing that constitutional perspective to the discussion of monetary policy and especially monetary institutions. And our claim is once we think about monetary policy in this way, we really do need a true monetary rule, something that's insulated from the discretion of monetary policymakers themselves, something strong enough to give the market reliable expectations, and something for which there are actual penalties if the monetary authorities deviate and or break the rule. So why would we embrace monetary rules? What are the reasons that we think that rules on the one hand outperform discretion? So we think that rules just work better than discretion. They're a more appropriate means 
for attaining the desired end of macroeconomic stability. And we also think that rule-based monetary policy is more in line with the basic jurisprudential norms of liberal democracy. So let's talk about those in turn. First, we're gonna address the means ends problem, and then we're going to address the more broad point about liberalism. We make two main arguments related to means and ends in the book. Why rules outperforms discretion, why rules works better than discretion at its own game. The first is the knowledge problem. There are all sorts of informational burdens associated with implementing monetary policy such that it's simply too hard for any centralized committee to implement monetary policy in a way that's systematically effective in top-down fashion. Now we break down these information problems into two categories. The first is technical problems relating to just informational burdens that could in theory be solved by further specifying the objectives associated with monetary policy, further fleshing out the targets, uh, picking better instruments for monetary policy, the things that the central bank can control to actually bring about changes in monetary policy, better modeling, better data collection. Technical problems are real. They are serious problems that need to be solved and they are a serious barrier to good monetary policy. But in principle, in principle, if you had good enough inputs to the policy process, those could be seriously ameliorated. Nonetheless, they bear pointing out because we don't live in a good enough world. We live in this world and those technical problems are still a drag on good monetary policy. But even if we grant those technical problems are solved, even if we grant policymakers the best of all possible worlds, there is still a true knowledge problem associated with monetary policy. And we're using knowledge problem here in the exact sense in which Hayek used the concept of a knowledge problem in his very important works in 1937 and especially 1945 on the knowledge that's embedded into the market pricing process. There's a true knowledge problem associated with no, uh, monetary policy because there's no feedback mechanism giving central bankers reliable information for when they're matching the money supply with changes in money demand. We start from the perspective that the goal of monetary policy is to maintain monetary neutrality, which is just economists' way of saying, we wanna make sure that whenever money demand changes, we want compensating money supply changes to happen too, so that the instrument of money does a good job at supporting markets, but monetary disequilibria, divergences between the quantity of money that people want to hold and the quantity that the central bank supplies, doesn't actually cause a wrench to be thrown in the gears of the market pricing process. Unfortunately, there just is no reliable feedback mechanism for central bankers for matching the money supply with changes in money demand. I'm gonna quote a line that we use in the book that sums up our objection. Quote, simply put, discretionary central banking is not only difficult, it is impossible. Now, we don't mean by this that central bankers can't make a policy that happens to have good outcomes. What we mean by this is because this crucial lack of a feedback process means that central bankers are essentially throwing darts while blindfolded, there's always going to be something that can come out of left field that can throw a wrench into the entire operating system. There's no reason to think, given these genuine knowledge problems, given the lack of a knowledge generating feedback process in the sense that Hayek meant it in his seminal works on the knowledge process and the pricing process, that this is just not something that can be done and harnessed in top down fashion. Now, the reason that a rule solves these things is because a true monetary rule doesn't even try and solve, quote unquote, the policy problem. A rule in essence says to the market, here's what's going to happen to the money supply under XYZ conditions. We're not gonna deviate from this. It's firm, it's set in place. 
Now you, the market participants, can make your contracts, can build your expectations given the rule. And so there's no longer any attempt to outmarket the market or try and outplan the market. It's simply setting these stable background conditions against which economic activity takes place. And I think at its best, when monetary policy was most rule-like, periods like the Great Moderation from about the late 1980s until the 2008 financial crisis, you saw something like this. It wasn't a true monetary rule because there was no strong and firm commitment to a basic uh, process that was intelligible to all market participants. Nonetheless, financial actors and central bankers got the idea that something like a, tame, uh, a Taylor rule parameterized in a specific way was more or less how the Fed was conducting monetary policy. And that's why you saw increased stability over that time period. And so our solution is to actually go from pseudo rules to real rules. We think pseudo rules are better than no rules, but real rules are even better still because only under real rules can you finally escape this fact that there's no feedback process that allows uh, monetary policymakers to basically repeatedly mess up or rather causes monetary policymakers to repeatedly mess up when they try and implement policy. Next, we also talk about incentive problems. This is the second broad category of difficulty that prevents discretionary central banking from working well, that prevents discretion from outperforming rules. And this is something that economists are much more familiar with, right? Incentive problems, incentive alignment is something that political economists who've done some work on money and monetary policy have paid a little bit more attention to. But nonetheless, we, the authors, contend that they still haven't paid nearly enough attention to this. That when you really get into the political problems associated with top-down implementation of monetary policy, we just don't have any reason to think that even if you could put the knowledge problems in place, even if you could fix those, wave a magic wand and fix the knowledge problems, we really don't see any reason to assume the incentive problems aren't such that we still wouldn't get bad monetary policy. To start with, we note that monetary policy is inherently political. If you're reading papers on monetary policy, they frequently proceed by writing down a model and then writing down a response function for the central bank that works through an instrument like an interest rate or the monetary base or something, and then discuss the optimal monetary policy response in response to a bunch of shocks that might arise in the economy. There's very, very little consideration for the inherently political central, uh, nature of central banking in these sorts of papers. That's not the only paper that you find out there. Right, I want to be clear. We're not saying nobody has done this before. We're not saying that all monetary economists ignore politics, but the majority of them do. It's still the case that in this literature, political considerations are considered a niche subfield of the literature rather than a basic consideration that needs to be the starting point for all discussions. So we're moving that discussion from the periphery to the heart of the conversation. We're arguing against institutional sterility. Central banking is an institution. Institutions by their nature select for certain outcomes and discourage others. And so we need to pay attention to how the institution, the rules associated with discretionary central banking are associated with picking and promoting certain outcomes and discouraging others. So we document a couple of channels in the book through which this can work. First, the views and policies of Fed chairmen themselves. We look at their views before they reached important decision-making positions in the Fed and their views after they reach important decision-making positions in the Fed. Invariably, invariably, with the three chairs that we look at, whose tenure was the longest over the course of time that, we're, that, we, were, that we were considering, 
It's the case that when they're out of power, when they're out of decision-making authority, these economists have very limited views about what monetary policy can accomplish and are much more amenable to something like a rule-bound central bank. But when they get into positions of power, suddenly they have much more expansive roles for what they see as the proper expanse of central bank authority, and they're much more averse to being constrained by rules. So you can attribute this to a number of things. We've had critics who say, well, it just turns out that central banking is a really hard job. And when they have contact with it, they realize that they need to be given a wider leash. That's one interpretation that you, you can take. But I think that that doesn't do justice to the political nature of central banking. We think the reason the views change is because the institutional environment in which those economists who become Fed chairmen are operating in have changed. Right? They're responding to the constraints of the system that they're operating in before they were in academia or think tanks or something like it. Afterwards, they're running a very much political organization. And so their views to be consistent with the overall nature of that institution also have to change. Right? This is not a conspiracy story. Right, We're not saying that there's this conscious attempt to misrepresent one's views or to uh, or to lie to the public or anything like that. Instead, it's very much an idea that the institution changes how, uh, how the people who are at the helms of authority operate and sort of incentivize people to go along to get along. In addition to that, there are pressures on and in the Federal Reserve itself. Internal to the Fed, we have to realize that the Federal Reserve is a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies are subject to status quo bias. It's a well-known mechanism within the political economy of bureaucracy literatures. There have been multiple commentaries from economists who have gone to work at the central bank and then go back into academia. And after they return, they say something like, yeah, internal to the central bank, they haven't updated their models or procedures for two decades. The kinds of research that are at the forefront of monetary economics right now are really just completely beyond what central bankers are talking about. And that's an, an example of how just status quo bias prevails at all bureaucracies, including the central bank, including the Federal Reserve. Externally, of course, there are strong pressures placed on the Federal Reserve by politicians and political appointees, not just the president, but also Congress, also the treasury secretary. There are numerous avenues whereby political influence and pressure can be placed on central bankers to be more accommodative. Everybody knows about the pressure that President Nixon placed on Arthur Burns before his reelection. That's sort of the famous case. But because of that, a lot of scholars have the mistaken impression that that's sort of unusual, that that was just a really bad, blatant case, and we've completely gone away from that. Now, while it's the case that perhaps uh, not every president will have a central bank chair come down to a ranch at which they literally physically browbeat a Fed chairman, right? That's probably unusual. We don't contend that that's happening every day. Nonetheless, political pressure is something that's the rule rather than the exception. Reagan, Clinton, all presidents do it. All administrations do it. Frequently, Congresses do it. It's not at all uncommon for Congress to want to haul a Fed chair or a Fed governor before a committee and lambast them a little bit. And while you might uh, doubt that that has any practical effect on the course of monetary policy, it's not hard to imagine that central bankers don't like getting yelled at on TV. So that's yet another constraint that operates on their behavior. Furthermore, we think it's important to appreciate that there actually is quantitative research done on central bank independence. Scholars have actually gone out and tried to put numbers associated with how independent a central bank is according to multiple measures. And when you rank the world's central banks, the Fed is among the least politically independent central banks in the entire world, not just amongst developed countries, not just amongst the OECD, the entire world. 
the Federal Reserve is near the bottom. And so if we're going to take seriously the problems associated with monetary policy implementation, we need to have a realistic view of the very much omnipresent role of politics, often in its pejorative sense, being a determinative factor in influencing how policy is determined and proceeds. So one other thing that we talk about in the book is financial crises. We think it's important to talk about financial crises specifically, since a financial crisis is the time when you're supposed to throw out any rules and procedures and do whatever is necessary to stabilize the financial system. And so the argument is, well, yeah, rules might work better than discretion during ordinary times, but what about really turbulent times? We can't afford to follow a strict rule during a financial crisis because then we risk the implosion of the financial system. I hope it's not too much of a surprise to you that we take that argument and seek to turn it on its head. We actually think that financial crises strengthen the case for rules. The possibility of financial meltdown actually makes committing to a rule when times are tranquil even more important. First of all, when you look at the sort of uh, the playbook on lender of last resort best practices, going back to Walter Badgett, although all central bankers pay lip service to Badgett, almost none of them follow his advice. They say they're following his advice, right? Ben Bernanke repeatedly said, all we're doing is doing what Walter Badgett did. But if you look at what the Federal Reserve did during and after the 2008 financial crisis, they repeatedly violated Badgett's dictums about what an optimal lender of last resort policy should look like. In particular, the Federal Reserve did not lend on good collateral at a penalty rate of interest. They did lend freely, right? They supplied a bunch of liquidity and credit to the banking system, but they did not lend on only good collateral and they did not charge a penalty rate of interest. Furthermore, there was no public announcement associated with who was going to receive a bailout or a last resort loan under what conditions. And so the Federal Reserve really kept the markets guessing at a time when financial uncertainty, uh, uncertainty was at its highest. So the Fed has never really followed a good lender of last resort playbook. So it's sort of a non sequitur to say that Badgett gave us the rules that we should follow. So the Fed needs to be free to do that. Well, if we had any inclination that the Fed would ever do that, that might be a counter argument, but they don't. Furthermore, by committing to a rule during tranquil times, market actors have little incentive to undertake the very behaviors that lead them into a crisis in the first place. Almost certainly excessive financial risk has something to do with the creation of financial crises. But why are important financial organizations loading up on risk? Because 40 years of excessive bailouts have told them that they are going to be classified as too big to fail. Privates are essentially privatized if you're an important fi financial player, while losses are socialized. They're passed on to the taxpayer. If I got to go to Las Vegas on the taxpayer's credit cards, I too would behave a lot more risky than if I were doing my own private thing with my own private budget constraint. And so I don't think that you can really blame market participants for following the rules of the game as the Fed and to a lesser extent the Treasury have dictated to them. Too big to fail institutionalizes bad behavior, Deviation from rules, how, rules is how we get these things like bad bailouts. And so you can't really blame rules or a rule-like environment for why we're seeing crises. We haven't had it, so you can't blame it for it. Furthermore, there was a school of economists that claimed that we might not even need the need uh, discount window lending in the first place. A group of economists associated with the Richmond Fed, this is sometimes called the Richmond Fed view of last resort lending policy, asserts that the Federal Reserve can actually tame financial crises relying on ordinary asset purchases, just ordinary liquidity operations. 
And so we think that this is an important, intriguing, and frankly neglected view in the monetary policy literature. It was subscribed to it by a number of economic heavyweights of the, of the previous generation of economic thinkers, many of whom are still with us today and are still writing and thinking and speaking today. And so the fact that this view is getting almost no attention, and almost little airtime, when it's frankly an important credential view that deserves serious consideration and is perfectly consistent with a monetary policy rule, we find uh, a little discouraging. And we would like to see that view receive more attention because it does mesh well with a rules-based framework for monetary policy. So in the next parts of the books, and I'm going to go more quickly through this because I think that this is going to be where the locus of discussion is going to be amongst the, uh, amongst the panelists, so I don't want to spend too much time. All this criticism is great so far as it goes, except we need to offer an alternative. We can't just say rules beat discretion. We need to offer some alternative view for what can replace the operating framework that we have now. Building on classically liberal thinkers like F.A. Hayek, Milton Friedman and James Buchanan, we think that we actually have multiple blueprints for a classically liberal monetary system that could not only outperform the Federal Reserve as it currently exists, but is also more consistent with the basic jurisprudential tenets of liberal democracy. Right? What's the argument here? You want your monetary rule to be stable, predictable, and non-discriminatory. By that you mean, by that we mean, we the authors mean a monetary rule whether it's a complete change in institutions or simply a practice that the Federal Reserve must follow, we don't want it to pick winners and losers. We want it to benefit the market as a whole, right? Society as a whole, rather than narrow interest groups within that society. We want it to operate on citizens generally, qua citizens, right? At a very broad level. And at probably the most important, we want it to be predictable. Market participants need to know explicitly what the rules of the game are beforehand because the most important thing associated with monetary policy is credibly conveying its future stance and future path. So financial actors can write contracts, update market prices and do the things that are necessary to make sure that markets work well and markets clear, right? The market system can only maximize the value of society's scarce resources if market prices and contracts accurately reflect opportunity costs. When will that happen? Only when the liquidity market, the money market is working well. How can we make sure the money market works well? By committing to a rule. Now we don't actually take a stance in this book about what rule should be adopted. We think a number of options are plausible. What we think is important is the rule has to be handed to the Fed. It cannot be self-chosen. And again, there need to be penalties for breaking it. All of these things need to apply for the rule to qualify as a true monetary rule. We discuss a number of options that were pioneered by Hayek and Friedman and Buchanan. We talk about the possibilities associated with a gold standard. We talk about a strict nominal gross domestic uh, uh, NGDP targeting rule, competing currencies. Friedman talked about just automating money supply growth, right? Perhaps the simplest institutional fix to the Federal Reserve that we have today is simply replace the FOMC with a computer that grows the money supply at 4% per year, 5% per year. You could talk about a more basic constitutional change associated with monetary policy in James Buchanan's vein, right? He talked about the gold standard. He talked about some other form of commodity standard that might actually have a lower resource cost. What ultimately matters isn't the content of the rule, but the fact that there is a rule in place that credibly tells market actors, here's what's going to be the way that monetary policy works going forward. So we conclude the book by discussing uh, money and liberalism in the 21st century. And this is where we get into the COVID crisis. 
That's something that really exploded just as this book was going to press. And we think the COVID crisis really illustrates the fact that we don't have anything like rule-based rule lawful monetary policy right now. And again, we're using lawful in a broader sense, right? Not merely Congress passed a law and the president signed it, but a framework for monetary policy that is stable, predictable, and general, right? We have this expectation that all other public institutions in a democratic society adhere to those criteria, right? We have robust safeguards in place for the criminal law, for fiscal appropriations by Congress, right? Any other public institution you can think about, we at least pay lip service to this idea that there needs to be these general, predictable, and non-discriminatory procedures in place. And yet when we talk about monetary policy, we're strangely silent about the importance of those basic framework criteria that we value for liberal democracy also applying to monetary policy. So we say it's time for this double standard to stop. It's time to take these things that we understand rightly to be good about liberal democracy and make sure that they apply to monetary policy and central banking as well. With respect to the COVID crisis specifically, we're very worried that the Federal Reserve crossed the Rubicon when it got into direct credit allocation, even though it did so under the direction of Congress, when it started supporting secondary credit markets for corporate debt, as well as the municipal bond market, markets for state and local government bonds. To be quite honest, this is fiscal policy. That it's financed by a printing press doesn't matter very much. It's fiscal policy because it's actually allocating credit, which is a scarce resource. Monetary policy, at least as we understood it up until pretty recently, was liquidity focused. It's ideally supposed to minimize resource allocation while also facilitating the liquidity demands of market participants. We've crossed the Rubicon from, fiscal, uh, from monetary policy conducted by the monetary authority to fiscal policy conducted by the monetary authority. And frankly, we didn't have very good reasons for doing so. Yes, the Federal Reserve was enormously stressed by the COVID crisis. Yes, an extraordinary response and magnitude was probably legitimate given the shock to financial markets. But if you look at all the metrics of financial stress, there's no indication that financial markets were anywhere near as stressed as they were in 2008. So you can't use these credit policies as a justification for, oh, well, we were preventing the meltdown of the financial system. Instead, it just looks like plain old mission creep, right? On the one hand, it's partly Congress's fault because Congress did ask the Fed to do this. On the other hand, it is the Federal Reserve's fault because they frequently innovated, especially with respect to the legal interpretation associated with last resort lending for implementing these practices. And I, for one, would actually like to see a Federal Reserve, uh, a Federal Reserve official stand up publicly and say, look, we're going to do this because Congress directed us to do it, but we think it's very worrying and we would appreciate it if Congress would maybe reconsider this when, when financial markets cool down a little bit. Instead, all of the commentary seems to be in one direction. We're just a few short years removed from Ben Bernanke for all the criticisms that we have of his policy, refusing to help Congress and finance a GM bailout in 2008 and 2009. Janet Yellen, when asked about bailing out Puerto Rican debt markets, said that's just not something that we as central bankers do. That's credit policy. We do monetary policy. We're not interested in crossing that line. We think it's dangerous. That was just six years ago. And now we have central bankers who can't even be bothered to stand up and say, we're going to do this because we are a creature of Congress and we have to follow whatever Congress says that we do. Nonetheless, we see grave dangers with it. And once financial markets settle down a little bit, we think we should really revisit this whole fundamental project. 
given that we're not seeing that, I think it's up to us, the scholars who work on these topics, to make sure that we understand the dangers associated with the precedents that have been raised in the last year to 18 months. All right, thank you for having me on this panel. And uh, I really enjoyed the book. I was part of the early production process, got some, gave some feedback, got to read it early on. And I think it's an important contribution. I think of myself, I engage in these current event debates when, about monetary policy. I often, if I do research, I start with a math model. And in both of those settings, you often abstract from these deeper political economy questions. So it's good to be reminded of this. And I think many people are never informed about this. So this book's filling, I think, an important void does a great job speaking to the importance of the rule of law, the knowledge problem, the incentive problem, and all the, the issues that uh, Alex just laid out in a very nice fashion. So the book does a great job highlighting the challenges of discretionary monetary policy and how it's a growing challenge and, and going to be with us for some time. Here's the, the challenge I would give back to the authors. So you do a great job showing us this issue of, of discretionary monetary policy. Are we convinced, though, that any particular rule would do better? So you give principles about rules, you talk about rules, but how is the reader to know that a particular rule can outperform the bad outcomes you talk about with discretion? And, and just to illustrate this, I'm going to bring up an example I, I did with you earlier in a, a previous conversation we had. You mentioned that the 2008, the housing bus, boom bus um, episode as, as kind of like this anchor point, this example that kind of guides the narrative of your book. And you highlighted that monetary policy was too loose in the early to mid 2000s, and then it was too tight in 2008. And I, I'm very sympathetic to that view, as you know, I, I share that view as well. But why? Why were they so accommodative in the early 2000s? Why were they so tight? And I think one can make a case is because they were following a rule. They were following an inflation targeting rule that made them nervous in the early to mid-2000s because inflation was getting really, really low. And then in 2008, inflation was accelerating. It was tied to a commodity shock, but they overreacted there. So they were, you could argue, they were following a rule, but this rule created you know, a catastrophic outcome, a boom-bust cycle. So I think it's important to say, look, there are rules, they can do better, but certain rules are better than others. And to illustrate that, 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 that challenge, um, just some other examples. You, you mentioned the political economy of what the Fed is dealing with now. Some rules would have intense political economy challenges as well, but who's going to implement a, a monetary policy rule in the modern age? It's going to be a central bank. And can we really get to a clean, you know, true feedback rule that's not influenced by politics. And, and I, I worry about that. I mean, I, you know, we can point to some rules that haven't been so great in the past. The interwar gold standard, if you want to call that a rule, it was, it was an awful rule and it was destabilizing compared to the classical gold standard rule. So I think it's important that we, we also flesh out the rules, why some are better than others, and give some, some evidence, some discussion as to why do these rules perform better and, and, and you know, maybe provide some counterfactual exercises, cite some of the people who've done it and, and make the case this particular rule is better than another rule. Um, another question then this, this gets to is, is it the rule per se that's, that maintains monetary stability or is it a deeper institutional commitment to monetary stability? In other words, you can have the optimal rule 
derived from a model, and then political economy considerations completely undermine it. So say for the sake of argument, that rule with the fiat central bank is nominal GDP targeting. And that's, of course, what I think. <laughs> Let's just, we can debate that. Let's assume that's the case. I mean, if there's no support from the body politic for it, it's pointless. So what's really important is that deeper institutional commitment to price stability, money stability, or is it the rule per se? Is the rule just kind of like the casing of a deeper institutional um, process? So, you know, when we look at, for example, the breakdown of the Britain Woods system, was that because the rule wasn't good or was that because institutional quality in, in politics really undermined it uh, dramatically? And I, I think that's, that, that's, that's some big questions there that, that we need to wrestle with a little bit. Um, and, and just to kind of flesh that last point out, you know, how do we get that commitment to monetary stability? How do we get society to value price stability, monetary stability? And I want to look back at the 1970s. 1970s was very destabilizing. We would use that as an example or monetary stability was, was way off where it should be. And it, it took going through that to get us into this great moderation period. If you look at Gallup polls from the 1970s and they asked people, what is the number one problem? Is it Watergate? Is it Vietnam War? No, the number one problem was inflation. I mean, it's, it's striking. This number one problem was inflation. And we haven't seen it that high in the polls since then. But it took that, that really loathing of inflation, that, that chance to experience you know, the effects of destabilizing monetary policy to get the body politic awakened, to support you know, a president, support a, a Fed that would implement more uh, stabilizing monetary policy. So that's, I guess, that my last comment is how do we generate, how do we get that deeper institutional commitment or support from the body politic to get to the rules that we want, that we think will lead to more um, macroeconomic stability. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I have some other comments I can say for the Q&A part, um, but I'll leave it right there with my comments. Uh, like David, I found the book very useful in laying out some common ground on which we can all agree about the deleterious consequences of discretionary monetary policy as it has been practiced. Um, I wanted to start, though, with a, an anecdote. When Alex uh, Salter completed his PhD at George Mason, uh, at graduation, I gave him a copy of uh, Walter Badgett's Lombard Street, in fact, a pretty old edition. And that wasn't really a gift. It was more of an investment. <laughs> and in this book, I'm pleased to see that uh, the investment has paid off, at, at least in the sense that uh, Badgett is quoted multiple times, but in the larger sense that uh, Badgett's wisdom uh, permeates the book. And Badgett had two kinds of wisdom. One was that uh, a system built on special privileges and artificial institutions like the Bank of England uh, is resting on a very rocky foundation, and we'd have been better off if we had gone in the direction of Scottish free banking. But then there's a second kind of wisdom that, okay, we're in the situation we're in. If I say abolish the Bank of England, I'm not going to be listened to any more than if I said abolish the monarchy. So let's think about how we can advise the Bank of England to make the best of the institutional arrangements we've got. Uh, 
And I think it's mostly the second kind of wisdom that's in this book, but I'm going to argue that there's an undercurrent of the first kind of wisdom. And I think that's important. That's what I want to emphasize. Uh, so as Alex anticipated, I want to focus on chapter five, the chapter entitled On the Shoulders of Giants, Monetary Policy Insights of the Classically Liberal Nobel Laureates. And it focuses on what Hayek, Milton Friedman, and uh, James Buchanan have had to say. Um, and they distinguish between Hayek talking about uh, private currencies versus Friedman talking about rules and Buchanan talking about constitutionalizing money, which is another way of describing rules. So on the surface, it seems that they're following Friedman and Buchanan and not so much Hayek. They emphasize binding rules. They emphasize imposing these rules at the constitutional level. Uh, but Hayek was a constitutionalist too, in the broad sense. He wrote a book called The Constitution of Liberty. Uh, he wanted a constitutional rule. And in the choice in currency pamphlet, he called it a treaty, uh, saying that government shall make no law abridging the freedom of its residents to use whatever money they wanted, uh, public or private. And that's a first step. Um, I'm a constitutionalist too. I would like to see a constitutional rule in, in, in the US constitution that says something like, Congress shall neither coin money nor issue money, nor grant any privileges to issuers of money, nor limit the free competition among them. It shall neither subsidize nor engage in the business of, nor abridge the free exercise of financial intermediation and payments, something like that. Uh, Betke, Salter, and Smith don't get so specific, as, as Alex noted. And I'll talk about why that might be a good strategy. But I, I want to raise the question that if we want a robust political economy of monetary institutions, the most fundamental question we have to ask is whether it's ever robust to put the production of money into the hands of the central government. And so... Suppose we lived in a, in a society that still had prohibition of alcohol. Well, the enforcement of that, that law, it would be better to follow the rule of law and the rules of respecting private property. That would be better than discretionary enforcement. Okay, we can all agree to that. But really the fundamental problem is trying to prohibit the consumption of alcohol. Freeing the market would be better. Uh, the book makes a number of important points about our current monetary regime. Uh, I like this quote that our current uh, system or proposals for making monetary policy typically, quote, rely on the illusory benevolence and epistemic superiority of central bankers vis-a-vis -vis the economic agents they are attempting to influence, unquote. I think that's a very important point. But we need to ask whether reliance on benevolence and epistemic superiority of government officials isn't inherent in any proposal that assigns control of money to the government rather than keeping it out of their hands and leaving it to unprivileged market institutions. So the literature on how to optimize monetary policy to achieve some stated or specific uh, goal 
the book points out, can't explain bureaucratic mandate creep that the Fed has exhibited, in particular morphing in its early years from a limited purpose clearing institution with no monetary policy role in the Federal Reserve Act uh, to a full-fledged central bank. That's an important point they make, but isn't the problem of bureaucratic mission creep going to apply equally to any central bank, even if its powers are initially limited by a constitutional mandate? If we want to eliminate the temptation of high-powered money creation to allocate credit, a, a problem they point to, don't we need to abolish the monopoly of high-powered money creation? So to sum up these uh, questions, I agree with the critique of the book's critique of central banking centered on the central bank's inherent knowledge and incentive problems. But I'm a bit skeptical that in a world of real politics, constitutional rules solve these problems short of keeping the government out of the production of money. Now, let me let the listeners in on a little secret. The authors might agree with this. The book pretty conspicuously to me, might not be so obvious to others, lacks arguments against having a monetary system without a central bank. And I've identified that position with Hayek. And when they talk about Hayek, uh, I wanna quibble a little bit with the description of Hayek's thinking. So early on, it's true that Hayek mostly talked about trying to improve monetary policy within a central banking framework. Uh, but there's also this, in 1925, in one of his earliest pieces, Hayek blamed the creation of the Federal Reserve System with creating moral hazard, making the banking system more risk-loving by telling the commercial banks, we're here uh, to bail you out if you get into trouble. Uh, we're here to provide liquidity if you don't manage it well. And this is under a period of a gold standard where liquidity can't be uh, created ad lib because there is a constraint of the Federal Reserve's liabilities having to be redeemed in gold. But Hayek said, look, having a central bank as a lender of last resort relaxes the constraint on commercial banks and creates moral hazard. And kind of channeling Mises, he noted that central banks, this quoting Hayek, central banks are intrinsically inclined to direct their activities primarily towards easing the money market. So we have to worry about the central bank increasing fluctuations in the volume of bank credit by easing constraints on the commercial banking system. And that was under a gold standard. Today, the problem's even greater. And I think most of the variation in credit creation comes from the central bank and not from the commercial banking system. Uh, Hayek considered free banking, not only in this 1925 article, but also in his book, Monetary Nationalism, where he said, the status quo is not good. This is during the interwar period. We have two different ideals we could move to instead. We could move to an international free banking regime, no central banks on a gold standard. And that would be an improvement on the interwar status quo. Although he said, the really rational system, that's surprising, but he used that phrase, would be a single central bank for the entire world operating to stabilize nominal income. 
But he said that's not going to happen for political reasons. And even if it happened, it would be staffed by economists who are more aligned with Keynes than with me. He didn't say that literally, but that's what he meant. Uh, and so we wouldn't get stabilization of nominal income. We'd get something, a central bank that used discretion to try and tried to be more ambitious and it would turn out badly. Uh, now the book makes a nice uh, characterization of Hayek's denationalization of money when it points out that in Hayek's view, the quoting the book, the claim that the ideal central banking could outperform ideal market provision of money was a red herring. But I think by the same logic, it would be a red herring to argue that ideal monetary constitutions that leave a central bank in place would outperform free market provision of money, which is perhaps why the book makes no such argument. Uh, the authors leave the case against free market provision of money as an exercise to the reader, as we like to say. Uh, so after spelling out Hayek's denationalization of view uh, that a market of competing currencies is the most robust system for achieving sound money, they don't say that Hayek pushed the logic too far. Uh, they leave that statement unchallenged. And likewise, they don't push back against the most denationalizationist statements by Friedman and Buchanan. Um, so if we're going to leave a completely market-based monetary system off the table and not elaborate what that means, which is okay with me because that leaves me something to do, uh, what reforms to the fiat money regime should we aim for? And as Alex said, the book doesn't go into detail on that. I wish they had, like David, I wish they had gone into more detail and at least sort of sorted through some rule proposals like nominal GDP targeting and asked, how would that rule be written? Uh, how would it be given teeth? What would the penalties be? What would trigger penalties on the central bank for not living up to the rule? And so on. There is a section in the book entitled What Ought to Be Done, but we don't really find prescriptions of, of any kind of rule there, any specific rule. We find rules are better than discretion. True rules are better than pseudo rules. True rules are constitutional in Buchanan's sense. We can all agree with that. But when the book says getting the constitution right is a valid concern, naturally we want more. We want to know what does it mean to get the constitution right? What would it look like? How do we get it right? And as I've said before, the most basic question is, do we want to empower Congress to issue money under some set of rules, some set of guide rails, or do we want to deny it that power? Uh, needless to say, that's not politically on the table these days. Uh, whereas changing the mandate of the Fed has a much more realistic chance of getting somewhere. Uh, but the kind of rule I mentioned earlier, which is more based on the First Amendment than on the uh, powers clauses, uh, the First Amendment's also part of the US Constitution. So what the book leaves us with is a call for more research uh, into constitutional political economy. And there's, there's no uh, criticizing that. I mean, that's clearly a good idea. Um, The objective of a monetary constitution, I think, uh, should be understood not as collectively implementing the best money design that experts can give us, 
And so I'm critical of Buchanan's way of framing it. He takes it for granted that predictability is the goal of a, a V criterion of monetary constitutions. Seems to me the criterion is to have the kind of money that money users prefer, and we can't preempt their uh, preferences or speak for them, which is a point that Buchanan makes in other respects. So it's a little puzzling that he thinks money is different, but he thinks money is not a private good. He thinks it has public goods characteristics uh, that I would disagree with. It is a network good, but network goods are best left to market selection. So I think we want a monetary constitution that ensures open and unprivileged currency competition so that people in an unhampered market can choose the best money. Now, the book's reticence to pull out a spell out, sorry, a specific constitutional proposal is a time honored strategy. It's one that Buchanan used himself. It says, first, let's agree on the need for a rule that rules are better than discretion. And then we can get into specifics about what the rule should be. And this strategy has its virtues. It provides us with a general framework, but it leaves empty spaces for other researchers to fill in. So it's okay there, as Nozick used to say, there is room for words on topics other than last words. Uh, it'll, this framework allows both an advocate of an NGDP rule and an advocate of a gold standard to endorse what the book says. And I hope this open-endedness will attract readers uh, to the book, which is an attention-worthy platform on which students and researchers can build. Yeah. Okay. So Dan, you, you, we ceded the time to Alex because he did such a great job presenting the basic thesis. Do you have anything that you would like to, to add? Yeah, I definitely appreciate David and Larry. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you had really good, insightful comments and I, I appreciate you taking the time to read through. Um, yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely correct that we did um, focus more on making the case for rules because from, from our perspective, we were looking at, you know, John Taylor you know, put out the Taylor rule, I think in 1992. So uh, specific rules out there, there's tweaks that people have made to it and suggestions. There's, there's specific um, prescriptions for a specific nominal GDP targeting rule. And we just saw that, that the, the, the standard central banking practice was to say, okay, well, we'll follow it, but we have the discretion to not follow it when we want. Uh, so we just saw lawlessness pervasive in central banking. So we really wanted to just step back and say, we, we want people to ask the questions that Larry was asking. What rule should we follow and how should we enforce it? And what should be the punishments and rewards? Um, we just don't didn't think that the profession was adequately coming to those questions. So the very fact that we're sparking people to ask that question means that we do have more work to do, but that we achieved our goal of uh, at least getting yeah. people to think about these, these issues in the first place. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I, I do think that at least one of the purposes that Alex and Dan and I had in, in putting this out was um, from a purely economic point of view, to uh, make sure that that people understood that money has a central role. I mean, this isn't new to us. It's, it's just an embedded wisdom of, of economics, but that money has this central role in uh, a thriving economy. 
And that money represents one half of all exchanges so that if you manipulate money, you're going to manipulate the other exchanges, which will lead to distortions and economic disruptions. And that those economic disruptions are, are tied to calculational chaos. So in some sense, to use two you know, words that have been used, you know, Friedman refers to the term monetary mischief. Um, and I think that's a, a very important concept of monetary mischief. But the consequences of monetary mischief are not just that we wear out our shoes because, you know, we, we, uh, we have to have different exchange rates. It's that it causes disruptions in the coordination of economic activities through time, which leads to uh, not just deviations against a trend, but it moved the trend down. And so that the, the, the fate of an economy turns on its monetary system. And then the question is, okay, so then, you know, what is the best monetary system to go about doing that? And we wanted to try to convey the argument in a way that would maximize the number of people that would think about that rather than uh, not. And, and again, there are um, brilliant works that we that we point to that work about the alternative monetary systems, um, hopefully. So at least that was a, the effort, I think, to do that was to uh, just put uh, that question on the table about the, the again, uh, and, and to do it again in a context in which uh, maybe aspects of that argument are being lost in certain discourses. So Alex, did you want to Add anything? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, first, I have to start by acknowledging this wonderful gift that Professor White, uh, <laughs> that Larry gave me upon my graduation. I have perused it many times. It's still in very good shape, and I hope to treasure it uh, for many years to come. So I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that you think that the investment is paying dividends, Larry. Thank you for that. So I think I think David that the points that you raised are absolutely well taken. And I, I agree with all of the, I don't want to say hesitations, but uh, extensions that you raised that need to happen. All of those things very much do need to happen. And I think that those are the natural places to go with, with extensions to this project. At least for my mindset, what I found really interesting about this was the sociology of the economics profession itself. Because as Dan Smith alluded to, we had this debate of rules versus discretion in the 70s and the 80s in the classic Journal of Political Economy articles, right? Kidlin and Prescott. And then uh, was it Gordon who had the 83P, uh, 83 piece? Barrow and Gordon. Barrow and Gordon, right. And so at least as far as I read the literature, after that back and forth on rules versus discretion, the economics profession itself came to the consensus that, yeah, rules are better than discretion. And then some time passed. And then we just pretended that we just never had that debate. And not in the sense that we revised or engage the previous debate, but we just started it anew as if it had never happened, right? There was some acknowledgement that rules are pretty good sometimes, but like Dan said, we wanted the freedom to deviate with them. And the link to this actual debate that was hashed out and was, if you trace the citation patterns and the growth of the literature, won by the advocates of rules was more or less ignored. And that was astonishing to me. I'm trying to think of, of what else in the history of the economics profession looks like this. You might discuss the socialist calculation debate, 
Uh, but that, that that's a little bit different because the economics profession itself wasn't wasn't persuaded, right? There are some people who thought that Mises and Hayek were right at the time, but then there are also a lot of people who thought that Mises and Hayek weren't right at the time. But at the time of the rules versus discretion debate itself, it seems like the consensus was that the rules advocates were right. And then that hard-won knowledge just sort of evaporated into the mist as the next generation of central bankers sort of came to the helm of their institutions. And that was a really, really astonishing thing because those central bankers came from elite academic, academic backgrounds where they certainly would have been familiar with this. And so what I wanted to do uh, with, with Dan and Pete, what our general consensus was, was make the case for rules as such and we understood that that without a more specific positive vision that we might not be as persuasive on specifically going all the way as, as we could have. Uh, but like Larry said, we are absolutely up for the game of, of engaging that question in, fu in future research. David, I think the thing that you raised about what's ultimately doing the constraining, right? How any sort of a monetary rule or constitution or institution ultimately has to jive with the with the ethos of the people themselves. That, that's a really fascinating point. And I, I think that that's a point that we did not explicitly get into into the book and didn't hint at in the book. We talk about democratic legitimacy. The next natural thing to ask is, well, what do the people, the root word of democracy, what do the people regard as legitimate? Right? What can they understand? What if the rule that they find best isn't the one that's necessarily optimal when we write down a macroeconomic model, but at least it's easily intelligible, right? The classic example of that would be a price level target. You can easily see why the public would favor that, even though that there are a bunch of reasons why me economists might say, well, under XYZ conditions, I wouldn't be so keen to, to get behind that. What do we do when those tensions arise? That's a fascinating question and one I hadn't considered before. And I think, I think I'm gonna have to give, uh, give that some thought. Uh, Larry, to address your points, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are not exactly allergic to a completely free money and market and finance. And I think that you know from, from my own perspective that that is what I would like to see. What I was thinking of is at least what I was hoping with, with this specific work is we could engage people wherever they were at. If they're absolutely convinced that there's no other way to stabilize aggregate demand other than having a central bank with fiat money, then at least we can talk to those people. If there are also those who agree that when you take the logic of knowledge and incentive seriously and then apply it to any rule-bound system, right? Who will guard the guardians? How do you have the knowledge to pick the right rule? These valid considerations, we can also meet them uh, as well. So building the sort of big tent coalition ha has trade-offs as you pointed out, but hopefully what we wanted to do is remind the profession of this basic issue of rules versus discretion as such. Uh, re recapturing and echoing that earlier debate that we think is very important and we think needs to be very much a part of the extended present as we sort of look at the landscape of central banking in the world and shrug our shoulders and say, are there any principled limits to central banking right now as it's currently practiced? Because I see, I see very, very few and that worries me. Yeah, I will just uh, leave with a final little plug for Dan Smith actually. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we try to play off in the book is a warning from Adam Smith all the way up through these great classical liberal economists of that the governmental habit is to engage in deficit financing that leads to public debt, which then is followed by debasement of the debt by the governments. And as Smith says, this is the juggling trick that governments engage in ancient as well as modern. <clears throat> and we still have that 
Dan Smith also has a new book out uh, with Cambridge right now on the public pensions crisis. Um, so this is a, a, a man who does not rest. Uh, and so he has this new book out uh, addressing this kind of issue. And I think that a large part of what we're trying to do in this kind of macro work that we're uh, doing is to actually look at how the lawlessness of fiscal irresponsibility and monetary mischief can undermine the long-term prosperity of an economy. Um, and uh, so I think Dan has, has, has uh, you know, highlighted a particular area of uh, public pensions, which have a, a problem that have grown up that need to be rendered with. Uh, Alex in, uh, in many works is also dealing with a lot of different issues in money and in um, you know, overstepping the bounds of the, of the legal uh, sort of arrangements in our society. And I think it's a really fascinating you know, question about how you can forge an adult conversation about these issues having to do with the extraordinary measures of the Fed, the fiscal gap that has uh, been uh, generated by promissory politics and, uh, and the structural inefficiencies and inequalities and created by the pathology of privilege in an economy. And we need to have adult conversations about that. And so I'm really very thankful for David and Larry to help join us today in trying to have that conversation. And with full knowledge, again, as, as Larry said about Nozick, that uh, there's words other than the last word. And so hopefully this is just maybe a beginning word. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.